Thank you. Amen. The Lord's grace is truly sufficient in the midst of our weakness. Amen. And even in the midst of changing circumstances, he is always sufficient supply. So thanks to everyone for coming together today to serve and magnify the Lord and to, to edify the body through your service. So it's greatly appreciated. We need the Lord's help. I, I, I need the Lord's strength today, and especially for my voice. So beyond and more importantly to that, for the ministry of his word to our hearts. So let's, let's seek him in prayer. Father, again, we joyfully and, and with, with much anticipation and, and confession of much need of you, we ask God now for your mercy, Father, for your divine presence in the person of your spirit to be in and among us. And Father, that your word, your eternal, powerful, life-transforming word would go forth from these lips and from what we have captured and written before us. May it permeate and penetrate our hearts and minds. Father, we can't do this work in and of ourselves, but we willingly submit ourselves to it now and ask that for the glory and the sake of Christ, for the exaltation of your name, for the transformation within us, for the magnification of your love throughout this body and into the world, may your will be done in our time together this day. Bless your word to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. If you remember from the outline I gave several messages ago um, on this particular letter, Paul to the church in Colossae, we've progressed through Paul's doctrinal foundation from, from chapter 1, verse 3, all the way up to chapter 2, this verse 4, or excuse me, up to chapter 2, verse 3. And then from chapter 2, verse 4, up to chapter 3, verse 1, we looked at Paul's polemics, his arguments against the false teachers that were infiltrating with these deceptive manifestations that, that he condemned through the exaltation, the superiority of Christ and his, both his salvific work and his satisfying, filling work on behalf of his people. And now, and for the past three messages, we've been in this practical section of chapter 3, verse 1, all the way to what we're going to get to, Lord willing, chapter 4, verse 6, which is the outworking of, of the reality, the practical outworking of the Spirit's work in our souls because of and founded upon our foundation in Christ, of who we are in Christ Jesus. Remember, we began with what needs to be as Paul is telling us, an ongoing daily work. It is, it is a striving, a disciplining of our souls and our bodies, of setting our minds, our hearts, our affections, our delights in the things above, the things above, rather than the things on the earth where Christ is seated in glory, fullness of his glory at the right hand of his majestic Father. But I want us to be real careful in reading through this, and, and we don't fall into a lull 
that perceives Christ as some high and lofty, distant, unreachable reality. He's in the heavenlies and that, that his love is, is out there somewhere. His, his presence is some distant thing. For we've, we've studied, we've looked at that, that we who have been immersed in, in, in his death, raised up with him into newness of life, we have received of his fullness. We have received what is all that we need of him and his redemptive work. Similar to what we see in, or what we need to look at and remind ourselves according to John 15, what he says in verse 9, 11, that his love is for us, that it is ever near to us. It, it is in us. It, it is upon us through that revealing, powerful work of the Holy Spirit, the, the commission Spirit of God, that third person of the Trinity. And we are now able to abide in this love so that we may know him more fully and have his joy in us and to be like him in holiness. So his love to us is not some nebulous thing. It is very real, very present to us, just as if he was sitting here physically in our midst, displaying and sharing that love with us. But we also need to be just as careful. We don't perceive his holiness. And that holiness that we are to be transformed into is something that is just an, an an austere life with with no joy, no pleasure, just, oh well, you know, sourpuss Christians. But where the language of Paul used in the last section of, of killing sin and putting off the old sinful habits that, that ruled our lives for so many years in so many ways are now to be cast off like filthy rags, worn out clothing. This language he uses is all there is, is, is part of our being made holy. And it is not without pleasure and joy that we become holy like Jesus Christ. Our, our killing of sin, what John Owen and others call the mortification of sin, is only one aspect. It, it's one part of our sanctifying work, the sanctifying work that we are in participation with, with God, with his enabling and we also need to realize that the very essential part of killing sin, of becoming holy, is what the Puritans and others call vivification, to make more lively, to enlive, to live, to understand what it is now to be truly human in Christ. And this is what I referred to a while back in, in being preoccupied with Christ in our minds, in our hearts, our affections, our joys. We need to prefer and give preference to Christ and his word and the ministry of his spirit above all things and on all matters of this life. So that as he preoccupies our hearts and minds through his word, through his spirit, there's no room for any of those fleshly imps and, and the temptations of, this, of the enemy and the world around us to find any ground to establish themselves. Just an example Consider the, the botanical gardens in Dallas, beautiful flowers. I, I've never been there, but I've seen pictures. Beautiful flowers. But, but what, if, what if the horticultural experts, the gardeners, always spent their time pulling weeds, clearing out the underbrush, getting rid of the grass, paid no attention to the flowers? Eventually, it would dry up. It would die out. It'd be a, a wasteland. The same is true for us. If we just focus on killing sin on one aspect of our sanctification, 
and not realizing and living in where that life comes from, we'll become downcast. We'll be introverted. We'll be doldrum, you know, in the doldrums. So it's with great and greater reality in our souls that Christ, he's our master gardener, the master gardener of our hearts, of our souls, our lives. And his concern for us is both individual and corporately. As his redeemed, we are now being, as as Paul describes here in this letter, we're being joined together, fitted together. It's to transform the gardens of our hearts with his beauty, both in life and in weed pulling, of sin killing and putting on his graces. We're to emanate that, that aroma of his eternal life and to bear the fruit of his spirit's work within us. Amen. But also the results of a corporate beauty stands in such stark contrast to the world around us, does it not? The wilderness, the deadness of the world, there should be, there must be, and there will be by the life of Christ a distinction that separates us and that magnifies Christ. For he is, as Paul says, is all and in all. And what Paul was commanding the Colossians and for us to kill and to be killing, to put off from verses 5 to 9, all that typified our life in, in that idolatrous desire and attitude and thought and pursuit and, and the actual outworkings of that in our lives, all those sinful habits that we have grown accustomed to in our flesh prior to Christ, all that is likened to really turbulent winds, to, to a raging of the sea. There, there's an insatiable insanity found in all of sin's lustful pursuits. Now, because of Christ, that has all been displaced in, both in principle and reality by the life and peace of Christ ruling in our hearts. So the Lord has given to us through Paul in these next six verses both a a beauty of style in the description of the graces of Christ that he gives here, but also that we are to continuously, actively, and purposefully be putting these on. But also, just as beautiful and, and also just as necessary, it is for us to embrace the very practical value and necessity these daily graces are. They are spiritual, yes, amen, but they are very practical as we live our lives each day. We are in a race. We are in a marathon. We are, are not in a sprint. So we need to, as we have putting off the old habits of sin, we need to be developing new habits of grace of Christ in our lives. Reading the word, praying, fellowshipping, encouraging, supporting one another. All of these are the work of the spirit of life within us. And all of this, which, of course, is by and only through an objective faith in Jesus Christ alone. So over the past weeks and months, as as I've been reading and rereading and rereading and studying and meditating on these verses, and specifically in this this particular section, chapter 3, 1 to 4, 6, I started asking myself the question, and this, this isn't a sarcastic or rebellious question, but why do we need to dig into these verses so much? 
We know we desperately need God's word to be inscribed in our hearts because it is true, it is infallible, it is eternal. It is fully complete in meeting our truest needs. And it satisfies our deepest desires and accomplishes all that it promises. But why study these particular verses in Colossians? Remember I said last time we were going to hover here for a while. We are. We're going to meditate here, I should say. We're not going to hover above it. We're going to be inscribed by these truths. But I, I put together some, some observations that I want us to consider. First, you want to know what God's will is for your life? It's right here in these verses. We don't need to look any further. We, we saw in, in chapter 1 of Paul's prayer that God would fill us and these believers with the knowledge of his will with all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that, why? So that they will walk, that our lives, our lives will reflect the value and the worth of the Lord, pleasing him in all aspects, bearing the fruit of the Spirit and in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. If we really want to know what God requires of us here and now this day individually and as members one of another in this church, you'll find it here. Second observation, this passage will show us, carefully understand this, hear me closely. Christian living, our life in Christ is about do's and don'ts. This is not legalism in order to gain God's acceptance based on what we do or what we don't do. This is about Christian living. Consider this from the section talking about chapter 3, 1 to 4, 6. There are at least 22 imperatives, 22 commands in this short section. 22 imperatives of what we are to do and what we are not to do in our daily living. And you can say these are ingredients to a holy lifestyle. Are are, are we not saved by the high king of heaven? Are we not now in a new kingdom and under a new master? And if so... If we believe this, this this now results in a loving response of obedience to our Lord. Should we not heed his good and beneficial commands? As they are both issued to us in love and for our good. And so we too, in a loving response of his initial love, have a desire to obey him, to hear him and obey. And we see a lot of confusion about this today. And what I'm talking about is what we call our, our freedom in Christ or Christian freedom. And what does that mean? Well, for some and many discussions I've heard, Christian liberty means that I can do whatever I want now that I'm in Christ. However, God's word defines this liberty as, as meaning that I am free to do what God wants. However, God's word defines this liberty as meaning that I am free now to do what God wants. This is our true freedom, not to do whatever we want. That was who we were in sin, insanely pursuing all the desires of the flesh. This describes our life before Christ. But our true liberty in Christ is the freedom to do what God wants. Is it a complete reorientation of our lives, our affections, and our wills to be in alignment, in agreement, and in pursuit of what God wants and what he wants alone. 
one of the main reasons from this in many passages is that we've been renewed into a true humanity. So we've been renewed into a true image of our Creator. This does not have just a personal dimension to it, but we are made to reflect God's glory and majesty together as His body. And it involves one another in our relationship. Our obedience directly involves and affects one another in our relationships. Third observation that, that this is practical section reveals to us that our life as believers, as Christians, that it is about balancing what Paul's been giving us here in the indicatives and the imperatives, about balancing the fact what the, what, what the indicative mood means is, is something like saying the sky is blue. We know this. It is the knowledge that comes to us from God's word. It's a fact. It's a truth. But also balancing with that the imperatives, the commands, like go paint the house. And we have both of these here in this passage. In this section, this is, there's a balance revealed to us. Balances who we are in Christ and what we are supposed to do and what it is that Christ requires of us. And this is not meant in any way to be tricky or difficult or require some high level of spiritual comprehension. But, but some Christians struggle with this balance of imperative and indicative at work in their lives. And, and what I mean is that there's some on what you may picture as on one side of the scale who believe that, you know, I can really obey God without knowing his grace. Basically a moralist. It's an extreme view, but they understand that, yeah, Christ died on the cross, and, and they understand that, well, they've made some mistakes in their life. You, you can call them sin if you like, but they prefer just to call them mistakes. And it's like for them that the glass is half full and that Christ has now come to fill the other half of the glass for me. He died on the cross, yes, for sins, but what really happens on the cross is that Jesus just shows how much love he has for me and how much he suffered. And now I know because he says he has a wonderful plan for my life. And if I just be nice to everyone, nice equals nice, that'll please God, I'll be okay. He'll bless me with what I want. But this is the perception of the gospel by some, as as false as it can be. This is how some deal with the balance of God's commands for them. And for them, the misunderstood realities of what Christ has truly done. Their starting point is not wrong, not realizing that for all sinners, we begin here with the reality that we are, we are nothing but a spiritual corpse when we come to God, nothing but a stench in his nostrils because of sin and, and deadness of sin. But as a spiritual corpse, we're, we're unable to do any good in God's sight, what he alone considers good and pleasing to him. And the moralist misses this because of their complete lack of understanding of who they are and their sin. The other side of the balance, the other side of the scale are those who say, I can know God's grace without obeying him. Who believe they're sinners, who who know that his blood alone washes them clean from their sin, but their perception is that he has forgiven them so they can't fail. They They can mess up, disobey, it doesn't matter how I live or what I do. Since God has forgiven me and everything, you know, everything I've done, he never sees my sin. He just loves me. So others should just accept me as I am. And they, they start, they begin to pull out of, out of context the, the famous passage in Matthew 6. Don't, how dare you judge me? You know, don't judge me unless you be judged. 
This is basically licentiousness that Jude talks about, denying Christ as master and Lord. So this Colossian passage corrects these extremes. It brings the balance so powerfully, and for the true believer, it provides what we need to know and the indicatives and the imperatives, how they're, being, how they're to be worked out. And what we have it, it given to us in such a way to cover every aspect of our lives as we progress, Lord willing, through this. For every believer, whatever day and age, there, there's a reality of what has been accomplished for us in our journey. If, if you remember, we looked at the past and, and present and future aspects that Paul in the past, he says, that, you know, at the time and moment when God intervened by his power, he, he washed you and regenerated you by, your, by his spirit. He made you one with the Lord Jesus Christ. And because we are now one, we have died, we have been resurrected with Christ, and the full payment for our sin has been made because we are one with him, and the power of sin over us has been broken. And so now presently we have this life as, as hidden with Christ in God, and as we appear is not really as we are, though, even though we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And presently, we are to live in this glorious reality that we are holy and righteous in God's sight through the Lord Jesus Christ. And future, we live in that expectation, that promise of that future eschatological reality that is coming. May it ever be so near. On that day when the Lord Jesus will return in the fullness of his power, the manifestation of his glory, and our assurance and promise to us from the Lord is that on that day we will be like him because we will see him as he is. So our past, present, future, our indicative reality, if you will, of who we are in Christ Jesus is there. And what Paul is telling us in the midst of this passage is, if you understand this, and if you believe this by faith, dear brother and sister in Christ, then live like this. Set your mind on the things above. Be seeking those things above. This is our imperative to personal and corporate holiness and godliness, which is solely based on understanding and believing who we are in Christ and living that out each day. Nowhere do we find any aspect of our holiness as an isolated, private enterprise. From the beginning to the very end, our holiness and Christ-likeness in our lives can only grow out of from a life of fellowship with Christ in his body. Where does the greatest aspect of our sanctification occur? It is in the body of Christ. Fourth observation, Paul's language in this context of life is a life of of putting on and putting off. It started at our conversion, who we are, what we are positionally. We put off the old man, all that we were in Adam. We were darkened in our understanding, corrupt in our hearts, corrupted thoughts, desires, deeds, habits, and now we are to put on, we are to be being clothed and credited with the righteousness of of the Lord Jesus Christ, clothed with the garments of his salvation, and according to what we see in Isaiah. I swear we're either one or two types of people, as you know from Scripture. We're either in Adam or in Christ. 
And if in Christ, positionally, we are to live out what we are and who we are in him. Put off and put on. This occurs every day. It's not a one-time salvific thing. It is a daily part of our sanctification. Trusting and relying upon all that we received from him and our union with him and called now to discipline ourselves for the purposes of godliness, Christ-likeness. This is a duty. It's a duty that we perform out of love for him because he first loved us and he first gave himself for us that we might be united in him. And this putting on is really to be, our, our, as I said, our priority, our preoccupation. Although it is after the order of putting off here in this context, but remember, where did that context come from? Verses 1 to 4 of who we are in Christ. There is our preoccupation. Not necessarily of more importance, but sequentially in preference in the Scriptures because this preoccupation, as I said, forces out, it starves out the opportunities of our flesh to make inroads. Do we not see and and experience this in our own lives, in, in our personal pursuit of godliness and in our corporate pursuit of godliness? As our hearts, our, our affections are directed upward, they are, they are set upon and as we are clothed with the graces of Christ, there is less and less room for these things that we need to put off. Not that we'll be, have sinless perfection in the, this life. That's not what I'm after. Sinless pursuit? Yes, I would say that. But we'll, as we saw, the root of our problem in our hearts is idolatry. And we have many gods within us that we try to place before God. Just think back for a moment. Some of the, the godly kings in the Old Testament, I think there are only three. But I was thinking of just meditating on Josiah. Um, children here, can you imagine becoming king of a nation at eight years old by the providence of God being appointed as a king and ruler over a nation? But it's interesting, during his his 18th year, when he was now 26 years of age, when he sent the scribe and the high priest into the temple to to count the money that was being brought into the house of the Lord, that, that Hilkiah found the book of the law, and he brought it back to Josiah, and they read it. What happened? He tore his clothes. He broke in repentance and asked the high priest and the scribe and the servants to go inquire of the Lord realizing that the wrath of God was on him and his people. But after learning the warning from from the prophetess Hulda, they gathered all the people together to hear and to listen to the words of the book of the covenant of God to his people, the indicative. They went back to the source of truth. And then what happened? The imperative. They put off all the vessels he went out and did a thorough cleansing. All the shrines, all the altars, all the houses, everything in the land that belonged to Baal, to Moloch, all the false gods. Note what they did. First, they burned everything. Then he ground it into dust and then scattered the dust on the ground. This was symbolic, symbolically given, originally from Moses. This is what Moses did. And how every godly man and woman is to deal with the idols and the idolatry of our heart. 
before a living God. Fifth observation. Shows, this section shows us that our lives, our lives in Christ, is about being countercultural. Do we want our lives to count? Young adults, children, do you want your lives to count? Do you want to do the hard things in life, the challenging things in life, to really make a difference in this world around us? Is that your desire? Do we, we want to live in such a way that we're not going to waste our time and energies and monies on the things, the entertainments of this world? What has been given to us by God? He numbers our days, and they are but a handbreadth. Living out this text each and every day will produce that in you. You will have a life that counts in this world to the glory of God and for, for the goodness of your soul. It's hard life, but it's God exalting, God glorifying. It goes against every aspect of this popular worldly culture, against all the antithetical wisdom of this age that we live in. And putting on Christ each and every day, personally and us corporately and in our families, forces out, as I said, the remaining areas of sin in your flesh. And you will stand out for him in this world as salt, as light, as truth. Not magnifying yourself, but dying to yourself daily that he might be glorified. This is a call to us to grow up, to grow up in Christ. And the best way we can be radically different in our society is right here. Six observation. I promise you we will get to our text. But we are only covering one verse today, so it was, I told you we were going to be meditating here a while. Six observation. This shows us that Christian living is a a living a life that is truly human. This restores us. Our, our new humanity is only found in Christ. We are restored back to what it means to be truly human for those who are in Christ. We've put on a new humanity, completely new, spiritually created new nature from God. It is Christ. This true humanity is found in Christ alone. He alone is the true person. He was the perfect man, the perfect God who lived on this earth. And everyone who is still in Adam, all they can do is reveal the corruptions of their sin nature. And where the image of God has been completely lost naturally and spiritually. But putting on the Lord Jesus Christ is to actually experience what it is to be truly human here and now. Anyone outside of Christ is not truly human. Even though they are created in the image of God. Think about that, especially if anyone here does not profess Christ as Lord and Savior. You're not truly human. Yeah, you exist in the flesh, but spiritually, you're dead. You're you're a spiritually smelly corpse before the living God. And yet Christ has come to reconcile that. Seventh and finally, this section is so important because this is where Paul is leading us. It shows us so well what Christian living looks like in a community of believers, in the church, all of the one-anotherings that we are to experience and grow in, how we are to thrive in this new humanity in Christ. 
And what we have heard from Paul in commanding all that we are to put off, the malice, the anger, the hate, and what we are going to look at today is beginning of what we are to put on in Christ, the, the compassion, the kindness, the humility, the meekness, and bearing with one another, the patience. Not only having a personal dimension to it, but more importantly, and take note of the distinctive order in this text, all of these put off and put on commands are relational. You can't put these things on in isolation and work them out individually. Think about if you were a believer on a deserted island. How would these things be worked out? How would they be expressed? How how would anybody see the fruit of the Spirit at work? That's why Christ unites us in a body so that that fruit will be manifested, not for my selfish enjoyment, but for your benefit. And likewise, your fruit is for my benefit to the exaltation of Christ, but as a glorious testimony to a dying world around us to demonstrate his love in such a powerful way that your life is so much more important than mine. So Paul talks about giving preference to one another in love. Christ died for me. I'm willing to lay my life down for you. As I showed you in the presentation in Sunday school, these brothers and sisters in Cuba willingly are willing to lay down their lives for you, no matter what. God the Father does not see us as individuals in and of ourselves, but he does see us and saves us as individuals, but does so, and through this salvation, calls us to a broader, larger community, the body of Christ. And this community is both universal, but also one that that is specific to, to a location and assembly as directed by the head of the church, Christ himself. It's where we get all of our wisdom from, all of our sustenance, all of our enablement from his spirit is by the head of Christ. It's not about me and Pastor Emilio. We, we, we look to Christ and depend solely upon Christ for the ministry of this body. For it is the body of Christ that is the new self, the new humanity. It is the body that is being renewed together. And we can see that Christianity and Christian living is not a lone ranger work. And this is why Paul uses that aspect of the physical body that he described in chapter 219 that I went through before. All the ligaments, the joints growing together, being supported together, held by by harmonious work, and the growth that comes, that results from that, is of God. Do you see? I, I was just in awe considering the beauty and miracle of this from a physical aspect and how he does this so well, so timely, so perfectly. As imperfect as we are, (laughs) his perfections are bringing us together as we're needed in our local assemblies. How he brings brothers and sisters in who, who are struggling, maybe not even saved, but are struggling in the faith and they hear the word of truth and they're, they're brought in and attached. It's, it's glorious. It's a wonderful thing. But consider this. Can, can we really be a Christian apart from the local church? Can a believer refuse from being joined together in Christ if this work of Christ is intended to be entirely relational? I, I hope and pray that as we've looked at these several sincere observations from, from this practical section in Colossians that the Spirit of God will truly give us a deeper understanding of the Scripture. We'll really be illuminated by it. 
and the importance for us of, of this for us and the great need for us to continue putting into practice what Paul is commanding in this section. So amen, we come to our text for today. And I want to reread verse 11 as kind of just an introductory reminder. And I really actually like the way the ESV starts verse 11. As our position in this new humanity, in this new life in Christ, as we are in the new man, and as we are now in this body, this assembly as believers in Christ, ESV says here or where, hopu, the Greek, it says here a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And Paul is here in verse 12 elaborating on our new humanity in Christ, further what he started back in verse 10 in putting on the new self. And with this, he now not only explicates the principles and what it should look like, but what the daily practice is to be like and the reality of it. Before we get to these virtues of Christ, these graces of Christ, this fruit of the Spirit, it's much like Paul's exhortation to us in Romans 13, 14 of who we are to be putting on Paul says, it's actually a better way in the Greek than what the NASB gave to us. I'm sorry for that. But in the Greek, it's put on, therefore. And this particular, therefore, refers back to verses 10, verse 10's participial form there of what we've already put on, that new self, new man. But he says, put on, therefore, as those who have been chosen of God, as the elect of God, as as God's own elect. Just stop and savor that for a moment. This description, this this chosen of God, was specifically used for the Israelites in the Old Testament. Uh, Psalm 105.6, and and I think also verse 43, excuse me, it, it, it has from that passage, and for these, these Colossian Gentiles, and for us today, it has extreme significance. This is an amazing consideration. It is exclusive. It is only for those who, because of the redemption brought by Christ's death and blood on the, and shed blood from the cross, for those who participate by faith in his death and resurrection are now identified as God's own people. Turn over just a couple pages in your Bibles to Ephesians 1 real quick. I want to read a couple verses there because Paul really expounds on this and elaborates this. And and from verses 4 to 6, we really see the, the reality of Romans 11 for from him and through him and to him, we see this glory of Christ. He says in verse 4, Just as he, God, chose us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. 
that this, this choosing of God, this exercising his electing power has an effect on our lives in all of its various phases. This is not some abstract or, or theory. Even though this originates in God's eternal decree from eternity past, it now becomes in the life of the believer a force, a, a power in the heart and soul and life of the adopted child of God. This this elective work of God has an intentional outcome, a result. It bears fruit, not just a work unto our salvation, but a work unto service, unto the community work, and of course, to the praise and glory of God. Because it is the electing work, an outcome that is is all to his delight. It, It is for our eternal good. And this merciful election of God goes so far beyond what we can comprehend in this world one that creates great worshipful awe in our hearts. And furthermore, Paul doesn't stop here. The, the Spirit continues this expression of the believer's status as those who are by his electing work, as his chosen people now, they are holy and beloved. And Paul uses hagios or hagioi here, holy, and, and he's not describing a, a moral accomplishment of a person. Rather, this is God's act of setting them apart as unto himself for his own, for his own purpose. Not just choosing, not just rescuing, not just forgiving us of our sins, but God sets us apart for his own purpose to be brought into his family. And it's important for us to see here and also in the light of the Old Testament choosing and setting apart. Think about Deuteronomy 7, 6, where where Moses is instructing the children of God and of who they were as God's chosen. It says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Think about that. Out of all humanity, you were born in whatever country, born in sin, dead hater of God, no spiritual life whatsoever. But in that particular instance and entrance of time upon your heart and soul, the Holy Spirit said, you're mine. Wow. Does that amaze you? Mm. And now to be placed into his community to be separate unto him, to be holy in his sight through Christ, of course. But with this election, we see a very tightly bound connection of his great love being set upon his chosen people. God's love for the believer is is truly amazing, not not contingent in any way upon our response, and thankfully from our previous complete hatred of God. No, this love of the Father for his chosen and holy children is beautifully illustrated in Romans 9.25. Paul's actually quoting Hosea where he says, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and who, her, her who was not beloved, beloved. And that her typifying the bride of Christ, that collective group of his people, now seen in the new covenant as his church, as members of his body. 
the new creation, the new humanity, all objects and recipients of his continuous, everlasting, loving kindness. His favor has been lavished on us through his Son. How can anyone in the world see the election of God as some cold, fatalistic doctrine? I don't know. Our election is based solely on the incomprehensible love that the triune God has for his people. And just what we read earlier in Ephesians 1.4, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons. And we see, we, we experience this love through the revelation of Christ in our hearts in this pinnacle of time when his beloved son died for us. But Paul's use of this election language of those who are set apart to God and have this love set upon them bring about a great power to the imperatives that he now sets forth of what we are to be putting on, how we are to behave that is purely consistent with our new identity in Christ. And Paul gives us another command, an imperative in chapter verse 12, and what some have, have rightly called a, a virtue list, a, a fivefold aspect of the graces of Christ. These are the ways the believer lovingly, faithfully, willingly responds to God's grace of election. Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, and pay, gentleness and patience. And we know these words, don't we? We, we say them often. We, we pray about them. We know the definitions, the, the descriptions. The question is, are they fruit in our lives? And there's an interesting comparison between this verse back to verse 5 and 8 where Paul also lists five vices found in the members of our flesh. But here he gives us five virtues or graces or characteristics that are to be fruit in the lives of the believers. And they cannot be isolated. They're not segmented one from another, each unique circle or aspect. They are all interwoven. They are overlapping. They are inseparable and harmonious with one another. You can't be compassionate without being patient, right? You can't be kind without being humble. You can't be meek without being compassionate. Do you see the relationship there, how they're inseparable, almost thriving, feeding off one another. And the reason is they are descriptive of selflessness, of of being self-forgetful. And don't we pray, don't we desire, I I hope, I I do, that we would be self-forgetful, that in our putting on these graces of Christ, we would die to ourselves, forget about ourselves, where we focus on him, focus outward to others, and living as, as the redeemed to benefit and aid others into the glory of Christ. And secondary to note in this list, and so very important, can you see how these are so relational? As I said, how can you experience and exercise any of these virtues unless they're experienced one to another as members, as, as members of the body, as, as one anothering? How can you, this be shared if, if a person shrinks back if they are involved relationally in a body of believers? And how could you even express or know these fruits if if you're not part of a church committed to one another? You can see here just just the beauty and the need both for membership in the body of Christ. So Paul is commanding us here, put on 
Be enveloped in what is a mark of the new man in Christ, having what he describes as as bowels of mercy, compassion, pity, a a heart of compassion. This is what Paul describes in Philippians 1.8, a yearning with the deeply felt affection of Christ Jesus. And we see this in one example in the tender relationship between David and Jonathan. Read that, study that sometime. But we as new creatures cannot be indifferent to the suffering and the needs of others, but compassionately concerned, active in meeting one another's needs. We're to be Christ-like as he demonstrated such a heart of compassion and mercy on the lame, the sick, the possessed, the weak, the weary, the sinner, all who were his enemies. He not only had the feelings and emotions that were compassionate, but he expressed it in word, in deed, and in power. And just so closely knit to compassion is is kindness, which from the Greek says it it is the grace that pervades the whole person. It, It permeates, it actually mellows all the harshness within us. Christ's yoke in Matthew 11.30 is this way. It is it is easy. It's not harsh or hard to bear, it's it's an easy burden. It is light, it is kind. And in this, he's expressing to us his greatest care for our good, just as we should have the greatest good in mind for our neighbor and for our enemies. Love your enemies. And just as God demonstrates his kindness to his enemies, so in like manner are we to show kindness to ours. For it wasn't it God's kindness that led us to repentance in Christ, seeing his glory and beauty. In like manner, we are to be those who love our enemies and do good, lending, not even expecting anything in return. And that is Christ-like kindness, according to Luke 6, 35. Humility in the believer. I know we did a book study on this. But humility in the believer is expressed before another. It is a result of a heart that is positioned or in a posture of submission before Christ. Those who have a heart of compassion and are kind to one another don't have a high estimation of themselves. We experience great peace in the body when we consider one another, giving preference to one another in honor, serving, helping, loving one another. And we see this demonstrated in, in the Gospels in Luke 7, or actually before that, with the centurion when he would not even have Christ come into his house because he felt he was so unworthy. Not a false humility. He recognized who Christ was and who he was before him. But, but in Luke 7, 7 of the public, and when he beat his heart, would not even stand close to the altar and cried out, poured his heart out before God, not even able to lift his head, crying out, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's humility and recognizing who you are before God. So our our humility before God and toward men cannot be mutually exclusive. They belong together, and especially between believers in the church, but not limited there. The humility is to extend out into the world, even to those who revile and persecute us. And and this is what leads us to that interwoven aspect of, of meekness. And we know this, we, we studied the Beatitudes very well. In Matthew 5, Paul used his use of meekness here 
doesn't mean weakness either. It's not being spineless. It is woven with humility and is more like a, a submissiveness under provocation, a willingness to suffer injury rather than inflict it. Having that power, just as Christ, hey, I could call 10,000 legions of angels down, but he didn't. A believer who is meek or gentle is one who knows that even as a Christian who still wars with remaining sin, I'm willing to suffer the burdens of other sin that they may impose on me. And this very precious fruit of the Spirit, as, as all of these are the fruit of the indwelling Spirit, this one should especially mark the believer who's helping restore a brother or sister who is in sin, who has fallen into sin, and against defending the, fa- defending the faith against other attacks, and even from believers. And a godly example for us to study secondary to Christ is the man Moses. Numbers 12.3. I hadn't read this in a while. It just really struck me again. How humble and meek Moses was. More than any man who was on the face of the earth. That he was willing, as a type of Christ, to bear the reproach and, and to forsake all the riches of Egypt and to deal with a rebellious people, to stand as a mediator in love and in great humility. And finally, and surely not least, but woven together again with these four virtues is patience, or what may rightly be described as as really long-suffering. Who greater an example and the source of this virtue to us is Christ himself. One of the great riches of his attributes demonstrated toward us as sinners, his great endurance and long-suffering endurance toward all of us. For true patience is shown in one who endures wrong and puts up with the exasperating conducts of others rather than desiring vengeance. Even simple word response, vengeance, slander, malice, Gossip. And with this fruit of patience at work in the life of a believer, are we only able to endure suffering for what is right and just? And in this, we find great favor with God. So I pray, I, I, I hope, I ask the Lord reveal, we would see how these virtues of Christ are, are at work and will continue to grow and be at work, bearing forth in our lives as believers but that they cannot be a reality if we are not interacting with one another, uh, being spiritually joined to one another, being shared and enjoyed between brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ, and even to, to the amazement to those in the world. But let me ask, would any of these virtues, as I said, <laughs> make any sense on a desert island? No, they wouldn't. They're to be shared amongst one another. And this is what Paul is going to demonstrate to us in the following verses of this section. We're not going to get to them today, unless you want to, but that's all right. (laughs) But continue, I ask, continue to pray and read over this section, meditate upon this, asking by faith for the Spirit's work in in making these virtues, these, these graces of Christ, a greater and greater reality in your life and your heart that they may be measured in greater measure, expressed outwards as we realize who we are in Christ, our position in Christ, all that he has done for us. 
I need this. I must do this. And I pray you will as well. And, and in the simple and yet profound words, Paul says, do not merely look out for your own interest, but also for the interest of others. Amen. Father, we thank you. Lord, even for this one verse of instruction to us of what we are to put on because of who we are in Christ, I, I pray that, that this would be a meditation of our heart. For many, it, it, it is a reality, Lord, and I pray that it would, it would continue as that daily reality, as that putting off and putting on, putting off and putting on, just as, as we're reminded as, as, we, as we put on clothes, we change clothes each day, that we would be putting on Christ, setting our minds on things above, looking to him, the author and the finisher of our faith, and that we would not allow ground to be gained by remaining sin, but submitting ourselves in faith to the Holy Spirit's power and presence to do this work in us, because we can't do it of ourselves, Father. We know that. So we ask it of you to make it a reality that you You alone, Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, would be magnified, would be praised, and would be exalted in our lives. And in and through this church and beyond these walls and into the neighborhoods, into the workplaces, into the different cities, your kingdom would advance because of these practical realities of the grace of Christ. Thank you, Father. Thank you for providing and equipping us and not leaving us to ourselves, not just saving us, Lord, but in your family, preparing us so that we may see you and tabernacle with you and likewise with us for an eternity. Oh, we long for that day, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.